following is a presentation of Cornerstone Bible Church in Virginia Beach. For more information on Cornerstone, as well as additional sermon downloads, please visit cbcvirginia.com. So in anticipation for uh, the cold day, I knew it was happening. I get in my truck, I come here early, and I'm wearing, like, I'm wearing wool socks. You know, my hunting wool socks because I'm freezing cold, and I am sweating like crazy up here. I see everyone else glistening. I see ladies fanning themselves. We realize that the, we're on heat instead of like maintaining the correct thing here, and I realize it's hot, so thank you for joining me in this fellowship of sufferings, of heat, in this coldness. You know, we are too hot in a cold day. It's terrible. Um, welcome. So I believe um, now I have taken all of Stacy's least favorite times to preach, and I've done them for him. So, like, he, he does not like to do Mother's Day. I did Mother's Day this year. He does not like to do the fall picnic. I did the fall picnic. Unfortunately for you, again, I did the spring picnic. And now the, 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 the service before Christmas, instead of Stacy doing it, I'm here again. So sorry to disappoint. But if you really think about it, Stacy's really moving up the corporate ladder, like, in church terms. You know, like, he's, like he has an executive pastor. Jordan does all his logistics for him, running all the business for him. Then you got the, you know, the man who does the dirty work, all the stuff he doesn't like to do. So uh, he's doing pretty well. Stacy and Jamie are away. Um, for those of you who don't know, Stacy is a man. Jamie is a woman. Stacy is our normal preacher. Um, that wasn't actually supposed to be a joke, but I know it's good. Um, so Stacy is away. He's in visiting family in, uh, in Chicago right now. And uh, we're happy for them to be away and to enjoy the holidays with their family and Christmas time worshiping and celebrating together with his family. Um, so you're stuck with me. I should probably stop, you know, just rousing him now and just, you know, and, and actually just and preach the word. But um, I thought I'd take a, a shot at opening like the way that Stacy does and give you some pictures um, that really have nothing to do with the sermon, um, but to give you an unnecessary glimpse into my personal life. Um, so if this thing works, here we go. Oh, hold on a second. Yeah. So. <laughs> Okay, we'll go back. We'll go back. <laughs> Stacy showed us a deer the other week, right? I'm going to show you. Oh, that's the, oh, this is a laser pointer. I don't know if you saw that. It's amazing. ADD, sorry. Ooh, shiny. So I showed you what real men do with deer. All right. <laughs> so here, this is uh, our Thanksgiving. There I am on the right. Um, and this is me showing Hudson. He's not enjoying this. Um, but showing him the deer that I got over our break. Oh, hold on a second. Man, I'm not used to this thing, if you can't tell. Stacy tells about us his great journeys to Chicago. Um, let me show you our great journey. Uh, this is Lewis and Clark, as told by Chris and Kristen Lowndes. <laughs> There's two amazing things here. One is that I, I was foolish enough to bring four women on a one-man kayak through Indian-infested territory. The second thing is, I don't know if you can see in the bottom left, my, my sister-in-law can actually walk on water. It's amazing there. We did that. Uh, the last thing, um, Stacy has shown us a picture of his wife flirting with a young buck, if you remember this. Um, I thought I'd show you the same thing here with my wife. <laughs> See, that was for all the ladies. They're like, oh, we love this. Now we're good. I don't care what you say. It's good. <laughs> so now that you're completely distracted, that's all I had for this morning here as far as pictures. But um, now that you're completely distracted, let's get to the text. We're going to go to Isaiah 9. If your Bible, let's go to Isaiah 9. 
We'll be spending our time today mostly in verses 2 through 7, but I'd ask you to be prepared to look back at chapter 7 and 8 also. I want you to see this this morning. I want you to walk through it with me. So we're going to be there. If you have one of the Bibles in front of you, Greg, I'm ready. Uh, It's on page 677. All right, that's right. See, I cheated though. This Bible I bought on Amazon on the same time they bought the Pew Bibles. So it was like $7, and it's been the best like, write-in Bible I've ever used. And if, it, if I lose it, it's okay. Like I have another Bible that like, looks maybe a little more expensive. But this way, I always have the page numbers that are in the, in the pew Bibles there. So 677 is where we're, oh man, I'm in Jeremiah, literally. I just lied to you. Oh man, I am not starting well. <laughs> 573, thank you. <laughs> 573, you are correct. Let's read. Verse 2, we'll start there. Chapter 9, verse 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder and the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in a battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Let's pray. God, would you give us this morning eyes to see? Would you give us eyes of faith to trust you and that your word is true? We ask that our confidence would be in you alone. Will you cause our hearts and our minds to gravitate to the ultimate reality, which is you, not that stuff that's around us? You help us see the truth and live a life of faith. Grant us faith and repentance, Lord. Open our eyes. In Jesus' name, amen. So I'm going to do something today that I did not plan to do up until Friday night, which either makes me really bold or really dumb. Um, I worked through this passage, and I was overwhelmed by it and enjoying it. I was going to explain kind of how Isaiah really paves the way for the Messiah to come from the Old Testament, how he's prophesying of him to come. Um, But as I looked at the context... I continued to be impressed by the original story that's actually here, what's happening in this context of Isaiah speaking this prophecy. I continue to be impressed, so now what we're going to do instead is we're actually going to go back and we're going to look at this and try to understand the context to which this prophecy is being addressed. When Isaiah is actually speaking this, I think it's really helpful for us to see, and we do this all often, these are always going to be helpful for us to learn and hear the Word of God. But this was to an original audience as well. This happened like for the first time at one time. Thousands of saints, probably millions of saints, have read these these words and it has changed their lives. But this happened to an original audience. So we want to see also what happened here. And that's what we're going to do today. We're kind of going to go through this and see the situation and see what was happening and how we got to this point that Isaiah told this prophecy of the Messiah to come. So we find ourselves um, as people in our context today Let's just pull out regular day. We find ourselves in a pretty um, scary world. 
uh, a world that is plagued by all kinds of things. Many that are, you know, you know, you can look on, you can see it on the television, you hear it on the radio, it's on your phone. You talk to another human being, you realize that everyone has problems and that there are problems around the world. If you listen to the BBC Global Service, you hear all the other things that are going on with other nations, the problems that they are experiencing. And we realize uh, that it's depressing and frightening, really. And um, you realize that we live in a broken world. You've got civil wars. We have terrorism. We have global warming. We have species extinction. We have plagues. Ebola. We have poverty. We have hunger. We have lack of clean water to drink. I mean, it's basic things that the world is struggling with. And even in our own backyard here in the United States, we see mass murders. We see potential economic failure. We see a U.S. leadership crisis probably before us. We see the erosion of like Christian and moral values, the acceptance, the high acceptance of abortion and the erosion of the traditional Christian family. And even we see the, you know, the verbal yet, howbeit active, assault on the church and Christianity, both in the news and articles and music and television, all of it, we see it around us happening. Even though we don't hardly deal with some of those larger, grander issues of poverty maybe or, or destruction or we haven't hit, been hit specifically with terrorism, although some of the men in here understand as they have served our country specifically in many of these ways how that affects us, but a lot of times it doesn't hit as home for us as potentially these people who are devastated and their lives are changed by some of this stuff. However, it is concerning. We realize that we should be concerned about it. We're living in a broken world, and that we can clearly see. There's much to fear. Uh, the world around us is a pretty bad place to live. But then there are other problems, much closer to home problems. For instance, we experience pain. Physical, ugly, incomprehensible pain at times. In this body alone, there's, there's several represented here. We just got, you know, we, we've had word of, of Maddie Settler who is struggling with these seizures and her body, they don't know what to do about it. And it's causing her much grief and much pain, both to her parents and, and to her little body being racked with this. And the doctors don't know exactly what to do. They're trying to help her. This pain. We know Donna Hirons, the, the Seth and Jordan and Annika's mom, dealing with cancer right now that's racking her body and destroying her from the inside out. Dealing with pain. We even see our missionaries who we have loved and supported and now and good friends of Jared and Sharon, Jonathan and Sarah Farmer, who just, praise God, on Thursday night had a baby boy, Owen. However, who was born with Down syndrome and major problems with his heart. It is going to be a very hard life for them. Emotionally, the struggle. Of course it will be filled with joy in Jesus Christ. But guess what? That stuff's not fun to deal with. No one wants, no one if you say, would you like to have this happen to you? They're not going to say yes. This stuff is happening around us and to us. We experience this emotional hurt and all these different types of things. We experience loss of all kinds, job loss, family loss, relationship loss, even life loss, things we lose. All of these things pass away. And sometimes, actually a lot of times, we actively sin and make choices to rebel against our God. Often I, I hear this victim mentality of, you know, we've we got to hunker down, we've got to worry, you know, everyone else is all against us and all this. I realize after 
very short amount of time that my biggest enemy is not the world around me, but myself oftentimes. My own sin and my own lust for the things that are not what God has for me. And not loving him and not trusting him. I don't know about you, but actually I do know about you because I know what the Bible says about you too. That you struggle the same way as I do. And you come along these things and you understand that you have actively chosen the things that are not from God. And that we have zero merit to deserve any sort of grace in his love. There are times in my life I've forgotten my standing in Jesus Christ and I'm overwhelmed and drenched in shame and guilt and sadness because of my own choices, my own running after things that are not of God. And uh, today we find ourselves looking around and seeing both the things that are around us, even sometimes the things that are within us, and they paint a terribly bleak picture find ourselves in brokenness. It is to this type of a situation that we look to today. So this is not a new problem. This has been going on for ages because of one thing, and that's sin. This is nothing new. We find ourselves at these types of a, this type of a context, this type of a scenario that we're in and part of and depressing and frightening and sad and, and terrible. Let me tell you the story of Isaiah 7 and 8. So I'm going to read some stuff here, so please follow along, or you can just believe me. I'm not a great reader, but you can try. King Ahaz, who's a descendant of David, one of a grandson of David, all right, is on the throne. Syria and Israel are desiring to attack Judah and overtake Jerusalem. Let's read verse 1 in chapter 7. In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, son of Remaliah, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not yet mount an attack against it. When the house of David was told, Syria is in league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the people of, excuse me, the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. This impending attack is coming. They hear of it. They realize that king of Syria, not Assyria, king of Syria and the king of Israel are joining together. They want to attack Judah. King Ahaz, to take this kingdom. This impending attack is freaking them out. They're scared. It talks about, like, using this language that they are like the leaves that are blown. This weakness, this fright, this scaredness that they have. Scaredness is not a real word, sorry. Um, But that's what they're having. They're struggling here. They're scared to death. Knowing this, the Lord calls Isaiah to speak to Ahaz. And he says this in verse 4. Be careful. Be quiet. Do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands. I love how he treats them. Instead, concerning these other nations and their plans, God says, let's go to verse 7, it shall not stand and shall not come to pass, for the head of Syria is Damascus and the head of Damascus is resin, and within 65 years Ephraim will be shattered from being a people, and the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Remaliah, If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. He calls them to believe. He calls them to trust him, to be firm in faith, and assuring them the attack is not the overwhelming concern here. That's not what they should be overwhelmingly concerned. And further, he calls them to be sure of God's sovereign rule and plan. So God is talking to them. Let's look at verse 10. There's something else here. It's going to continue in this. And again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz. 
Ask a sign of the Lord, your God. Let it be as deep as Sheol or high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said, Hear then, O house of, Israel, of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. <laughs> Basically, since you won't listen, I'll make up a sign. I'll, I'll give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, should call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. So don't be confused about Syria and Assyria. They're two different people here. The king of Assyria is who you need to freak out about. This is the one that will come and I will use for my judgment. The sign of faith, Emmanuel, that we all know. We all know this story. Behold, a virgin shall conceive. And we know the, the, the long, the long uh, the fulfillment of this. Matthew 1, 23. Who is this? The fulfillment of Emmanuel? Jesus Christ. He is the one that we've actually been waiting for. God with us. But this sign Instead of being an encouragement now because he has not listened and obeyed and had faith and trusted God, instead has become a sure sign of his impending doom and God's displeasure. So what is happening here? I, I thought about taking time to talk about Emmanuel and all that this entails, but instead we're going to continue to move through to get where we're going today. Ahaz has no desire to trust God in this scenario. Did you hear that, the way I spoke, the way that he responds to God? I'm trying to help you understand, like, how rude it was of him to say, oh, I won't test God. Like, I, it would far be it for me to do something like that. God told him to ask a sign, and he doesn't do it. What's that? Disobedience. He doesn't believe. He doesn't want to confirm that God is true. He would rather trust men. He'd rather trust his own politicking. He wants to be good at what he does, and he trusts himself and the things that he can work out, and the relationships he can work out, and not God. And so, he doesn't ask for a sign. So God gives him a sign anyway. Isaiah goes on to describe just how bad things will be, and how the guy they should be looking for, the king of Assyria, will be used as a tool of judgment for the people of Judah. In chapter 8, we see another sign, but this one's not Emmanuel. If you remember this, the sign is Isaiah's son. His name is Maher Shalal Hashbez. This is the one that will be born to Isaiah's wife. His name means something like speeding to the plunder or hurrying to the spoil. The idea here is he's being named this to really kind of get them to understand that what's happening is these two nations that are coming after him, uh, you have the, the king of Israel and the king of Syria, they're coming. They're not worried about the overall picture. They're just going right to the spoil. They're hurrying through to get it. They're not worried about what's going on around them. It's a prediction of the coming attack on Syria and Israel by Assyria. Assyria is coming, and they will completely overtake these nations. It is a reminder that this little attack from Syria and Israel is short-sighted, and truly, it's almost unimportant. When we get to 8.11 through 9.1, we are going to get some of the notes from Isaiah. So this is not necessarily moving our story forward, this is Isaiah taking a minute to stop 
and describe the scenario and what's going on and the truth of the scenario and what we should be thinking and how people are thinking and how they should be thinking and what it will potentially mean for their lives. So this is verse 11. Let's read this through. For the Lord spoke thus to me with his strong hand upon me and warned me not to walk in the way of his people, saying, Do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy, and do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear, and let him be your dread. And he will become a sanctuary, and a stone of offense, and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many shall stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken. Bind up the testimony, seal the teaching among my disciples. I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob, and I will hope in him. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are signs and portents of Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells on Mount Zion. And when they say to you, inquire of the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter, should not a people inquire of God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? To the teaching and to the testimony? If they will not speak according to this word, it's because they have no dawn. They will pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry. And when they are hungry, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God. And they will turn their faces upward and they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish. And they will be thrust into thick darkness. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, but in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. Now, I recognize that I read a lot to you. Hopefully, we can start to see, though, this is his commentary on what's going on. This is so important because really we're getting to the nugget, the truth of what's happening in this passage and why this is so important for them and for us. He is describing the people of God, both as a nation and then as those who are actually trusting him. You've probably heard of this idea of a, a remnant, someone, a, a group inside a group that is actually being faithful. We're seeing that for the first time. We're seeing, and I could spend several Sundays easily on this passage alone, this little section. There's so much here. But we want to make a few quick mentions, important things that we want to listen to. We're learning that Jewish nationality doesn't matter as much as being one who honors and fears the Lord. That's verse 13. It shows the difference between those who fear God versus those who do not. To those who fear him, God is what? He's a sanctuary. God is a sanctuary. But to those who fear people and not God, he is a stone of offense, a trap, and a snare. He's a terrible, frightening God. Even though he is talking about Jews, there's obviously a distinction between those who trust God and those who aren't, who are Jews. They're actually national Israel, and they're not trusting him. And it says, and when they are hungry, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward, and they will look to the earth, but behold, get this language, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish. And they will be thrust into thick darkness. So we talked at the beginning of this message about 
our own society, our own context, our own sin, this is looking pretty bleak. Very similar to what we just talked about. A similar situation where sin is making things very dark, very sad, very frightening. Even the ones who are trusting and fearing God actually are experiencing the hardships and darkness. Notice what he says in verse 17. Look at it. I will wait for the Lord. Who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob? Isaiah recognizes that God is hiding his face from the house of Jacob. But look at the rest. Look at the, look at the next phrase. This is the golden nugget that you've got to grasp. I will, it says, I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob and I will hope in him. Not some other king, not some way of working his politics out, not some way of hoping that the land survives. Isaiah's hope in all the darkness is in God alone. And he is the one that he hopes in. The statement, this is the statement that embodies the believers, check, catch what I'm saying there, believers' perspective on hardship and living in a broken world. Isaiah and those faithful to his God stand solidly on the truth that God is actually still in complete control. He is their sanctuary. And now we finally come to our historic well-known passage, 9, 2 through 7, um, and it gleamed as like a beacon of hope. Do you understand? When, when Isaiah is bringing this up, he's like, he's been waiting, he's telling them about this, and now he's ready to give them what is the hope. He's going to give us more information about the coming Messiah than has ever been given before. And, uh, you know, spoiler alert, it's about the Messiah. The Messiah is the one that's, you know, the great, the great hope that we have. Not some generic hope, the season of hope that we have, but rather in the Messiah himself. Let's read 2 through 7. The people who walked in darkness. So think about what I just talked about. We just read about these people being thrust in the thick darkness. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You, and he's talking about God, you have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder and the rod of his oppressor, you have broken, as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government shall be on his shoulders and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. It says of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. Not only that, listen, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do it. Praise God. <laughs> Isaiah is giving us some express detail as to what there is to hope in. It is not a generic, we're so glad you're with us in this season of hope. No, no. He's telling us express details about who this is. We get a prophecy of hope, a prophecy of the Messiah to come, who will one day make all things right. And the hope is described in verse 2 and 3. So look at verse 2 and 3. Instead of darkness and gloom, what do we have? A great light has shone. Almost like a great light that appeared when the words were uttered, let there be light. 
There's only one who can bring light from darkness. His creatorial power, God. The nation is now thriving. Look what it says here. No longer they oppressed and conquered and trying to hang on to their identity. God has multiplied the nation and increased their joy. Look, Isaiah says, you have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. This is what everyone wants and needs. This is what everyone in the world actually wants and needs. Whatever they decide to be their joy and their increase, that's what they really want, to be happy with what they think is the best and, and to be joyful. Isaiah is saying this will come. The hope is explained in 4, 5, and 6. So if you see 2 and 3, right, we have the hope described. But now after this, we have these three indicators. Look at verse 4, 5, and 6. Go ahead and look at it. What is the first word you see in 4, 5, and 6? It's okay to say it back. For. This is giving you an explanation of what was just stated. There's a description of what's happening. A great light is shining now in the, in the realm of darkness. Multiplication of these people who were once oppressed. Great joy is now given. Why? How? You're, you're left saying, how is that going to be? Like Again, it's one of these like not an end to what's happening. You're saying, okay, there's something awesome is going to happen, but instead of leaving us hanging there, he's going to describe it. He's going to say, first of all, the first thing in verse 4, for the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder and the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. The burden and the oppression God's people are facing will be broken and done away with completely. And a look, uh, what God reminds us of here, do you remember um, the defeat of Midian? Does anyone remember the man who is associated with this? It actually rhymes with Midian. Gideon, yeah, you guys are good. Gideon goes and he grabs a bunch of guys to be his soldiers. And what does God do? Takes them from thousands of men down to what? 300. 300 people. That's not even enough to like start a petition. But they like, instead, these 300 defeat Midian. And the message is that is not that these 300 men who were prepared and they did the correct things while drinking water or whatever it is. The message is that they were so great. The message is that God, of using 300 men, could defeat a whole nation. It was God who did the work. So he's bringing that to remembrance. He's saying, as I did in Midian, this is what I will do again. But we're going to realize eventually this is not just small time like Midian. We're going big, like forevermore type language here. Let's continue. The point here is that Gideon and his men, of course, had nothing to do with victory. God granted them success. Verse 5, again, this is the next four, so we're, we're stepping down. Four, the first part is that his yoke, his burden, staff, shoulder, rod, all those things that oppressed him are now been broken. The second part, for every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. So all the tactical gear you guys have, it's used for fire because they have nothing else to do with it. There's no more war. It's gone. The boots, the gear, it's all gone. It doesn't matter. They don't need it for anything. So they turn it into fuel for the fire. Again, this is a word picture reminding us that war will be done away with. Oppression shall cease. War will be gone. How's this going to happen? Again, we're still, do you notice that? He's like giving us these things that are answering the questions, but still like, how? How will we do that? The final four. Cue the music. For unto us a child is born. That's right, I did it. I had the courage to fail. You think that was good, you should hear Caleb. I'm telling you. 
It is like the angels from the Vienna Boys Choir should be singing this verse. I can't really do that. So it is like everything should be highlighting this. This is the final four in this presentation, and it's the most important four. For unto us or to us, a child is born. It's incredible. It's the foundation of all hope for Isaiah, for his people, for the nations, for us. The last four, he says here, for to us a child is born, a son is given. What an ironic final answer to the problem that's at hand. Child, like this darkness, this, this overwhelming sadness and fright and the military power that's being expressed by all these other nations. A child is born? That's the answer? A son is given? That's what we think about in Christmas, right? We think about the manger, we think about the boy in the, in the cradle, Mary birthing him. You know, it's a wonderful time. It was probably very cold and snow was falling and there was one that one silent star. That's what we think of, right? But that's not the end of the verse. Look at the rest there. Look at it. A child will be born, not just any child, a son, a son who will govern the entire world. A son whose name is unlike any other name. That ring a bell? Wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, the prince of peace? Who can do that? No normal human being can live up to these names. None. It doesn't say that this is the name that should be given to him to represent what God is going to do. No, he shall be called these things. This is who he is. Isaiah goes on, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and other, excuse me, and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. We learn that one will come, like in this, remember this, 2 Samuel 7, we actually talked about this a few weeks ago, who will come and sit on the throne of David, who is coming from his line, the promised one, and he will do these things. And his kingdom will be forevermore. It's not just a simple the dynasty will work out. It'll be good. It'll be, you know, a strong dynasty in Israel. No, forevermore, like changes the world. Like the same language that we find back in Genesis 12. Remember, remember we talked about this, Genesis 12, 3? You know, uh, those who bless you, he's talking to Abraham, I will bless those who curse you, I will curse. Then what does he say after that? Remember this? He says that you will be, this woman will be a blessing to all the nations. Let me draw your attention really quick because this was, this hit me like, a hammer. It was so cool. So verse 1 is kind of hard to understand a little bit, but let me just throw this out there. So like the 9-1, look at 1. It talks about the gloom and the darkness, and then he's talking about, he's talking about verse 1, he's talking about that remnant. He's talking about the people. They will not be in this gloom. And further he says, but in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, we're going further and further, Galilee of the, even further, ready here, nations. Do you understand the significance of that? That's Gentiles, right. I don't know who said that. That's exactly right. This isn't Judah. This is not Israel. This is the nations. This is all peoples. Even here in Isaiah, the gospel is proclaimed to all peoples. He knows that one day all peoples will be blessed through this specific Messiah, Jesus Christ. This is the one who is coming. Not only will this happen by this person, there's a stamp by the end, he says, it will be done by the zeal of the Lord of hosts. Another way of saying that, the Lord of vast armies of angels who can do whatever he wants to do. 
That's the type of stamp that's on this promise, this prophecy. The Lord of hosts will have this done. There is great hope that Isaiah and those who fear the Lord have. The hope is the Messiah. Now for all the talk that we hear about on the radio and somehow hope seems to find its foundation in so many other things. We hear about Father Christmas and Santa and the idea of that and giving and the family and the goodness of humanity. And uh, even as Buddy Elf, Elf, the Elf states talk about Christmas cheer, you know, these things are foundational for hope. Bad news for you. <laughs> They're fleeting. They can't do it. They don't have all power. They aren't the mighty God. They aren't the everlasting Father. They aren't the Prince of Peace. We don't need like a treaty to come up with. We need a king who has all power. That's King Jesus. That's who is coming and who has come and will come again, by the way. The only real hope that anyone has ever had is the Messiah. There is no other hope for humanity. And trust me, I'm concerned with the world around us. I am. I, you know, I, I think that we should take care of our planet. I do think we should do that. We should be responsible with the gift that God has given to us and be stewards of it. I do think that we should try to stop ISIS and we should figure out a way to protect innocent people from dying. I do think we should get better at medicine and, and work hard in those fields to, to try to provide good solutions to help people that are sick. I believe all that. I, I'm okay with all that. None of those are the Prince of Peace. None of those will set up an everlasting kingdom. They can't do it. Don't let us, let us not put our hope in these foolish things. Let us hope in the one who will come again and who will set up a kingdom forevermore, who has begun and will finish it. He promises to. Remember this time as we are. This is a Christmas message. The Christmas message isn't, remember the, the baby in the cradle, in the, in, in the manger. That's a wonderful thought because that means that God became man. It means that he is like us in, in can, and can understand. He is that way a great high priest. But don't leave him there. That's, that's not what Christmas is all about. The fact of Christmas is the advent that Jesus came to do what he set out to do from the beginning. That we have a great hope. The hope isn't in this small thing in the baby being in the cradle, but rather that he will be the Prince of Peace forevermore and that he will establish the kingdom and that he will grant to all the nations the blessings that he promised back in Genesis 12, 3 to all nations. It is in those things we must hope today. And it is on us, by the way, to tell others this hope. I'm not trying to say be, you know, quirky and weird about like, keep Christ in Christmas. I'm not saying that. What I am saying is that we are a light to the nations. We have a task. The, the best thing we can do is not help in climate change. The best thing we can do is not work hard in medicine. That's not our life. The best thing we could possibly do is introduce them to the Prince of Peace. So don't be lazy. Don't act like he's not the answer. Tell your family, tell your children, tell your parents, tell your friends in day-to-day -day life. I'm not saying get a soapbox and start preaching. I'm saying love people enough to tell them the truth about Jesus Christ. I'm not saying it's easy because you know what? Our own sin gets in the way. Our own pride, our own scaredness that people are going to think we're weirdos. Man, but the Prince of Peace is coming. And for those that is not the Prince of Peace, he will destroy. 
So the message of Christmas is that Jesus Christ will come one day to establish his throne forever. And he's begun that work. And he will do that. He will bring it to completion. Let us respond then in faith and belief in trusting him for what he is said he will do and what he has already done. Let's pray. God, the hope and fears of all the years are met in you and that one night in Bethlehem, the beginning of so many things. You are such a good God and you have provided for us the answer, Jesus Christ, the Messiah. We thank you for your love. We thank you for giving us your son. We ask that you would help us to respond or give us faith and repentance. We ask for those things. We need them. Help our unbelief. May we trust that you are who you say you are and may we treat each day as though you are the real God. You are the Prince of Peace. Thank you for your love and I ask that you would help us now to go forward as people that have hope, not in a season, but in the hope in Jesus Christ. We love you in your name.